Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Humility Gap podcast. I'm Bethan Willis, and throughout this series, I'll be talking to academics, politicians, and public figures to find out how we can become more open-minded. We'll be looking at the virtue of intellectual humility in order to help us really focus in on the habits and practices which can enable us to become more open-minded. Humility is not the same thing as not having a view of your own or lacking in conviction. As if to be humble is to always have doubts, therefore never have any firm beliefs. That is to be a leaf in the wind, is not to be humble, right? But yes, to be humble requires that one is always open to the possibility that one's ideas are wrong. In this episode, I talked to Professor Alessandra Tanasini of Cardiff University. We discuss her recent research project, Changing Attitudes in Public Discourse, which explores whether a practice of repeating and reflecting on our own values can help prevent arrogant attitudes in public debate. We also discuss what intellectual humility actually means and how it relates to timidity and civility. And we ask, what does humility mean for those on the margins of public debate? Should we talk about vices and virtues or should our focus be on structural oppression? Is there a place for pride alongside humility? Alessandra kicks off our series with a more in-depth philosopher's guide to the key terms and issues. We hope you enjoy. It's great to be here with Alessandra Tanasini, Professor of Philosophy at Cardiff University and currently running a two-year project called Changing Attitudes in Public Discourse. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to the kind of questions you're looking at now and how you got into philosophy in general? Sure. I began, I suppose, life as a, as a feminist philosopher mm-hmm. and I still am interested in feminist philosophy. Uh, especially feminist epistemology, so some of my early work has been on standpoint epistemology. And working on standpoint epistemology has made me realise how women's contributions to debates is often silenced, and how often also women are self-silencing in debate. And so I've become interested in, uh, if you want, the obstacles to knowledge for for people from marginalised groups, and how relations of power influence uh, relations of epistemic dependence. And so on the basis of that, then I've then been interested in how, you know, how silencing occurs. And a lot of the work on silencing is to understand linguistically what silencing is. But I was interested in the causes of it. And I was interested in the epistemic arms it causes. And that's how I came to sort of studying arrogance, civility and timidity. The view is that uh, arrogance silences other people and people who are silenced by arrogance become either servile or timid or both. So can you tell me a little bit about the project that you've been working on in the past two years, the the Changing Attitudes in Public Discourse um, project? Um, So you've told us a little bit about why you think that's worth exploring, but what have you found during the course of your research? How have you conducted it? How's it gone? The first thing to be said about the project is that it's multidisciplinary. So it brought together philosophers psychologists and more specifically social psychologists and linguists and it was 
the initial idea was to do two things. Uh, one, to test an hypothesis that I have formulated and, and is in print in my paper, Humility as an Attitude. And the hypothesis is that humility is underpinned by attitudes in the sense in which psychologists use the notion of an attitude. So that was the first aim. And the second aim was subsequent to it to see whether arrogance is also an attitude and whether we can address it by means of self-affirmation. So we had short debates. They were about 15 minutes long. Um, the debating group consisted of three participants and the fourth person who was a confederate. But of course the participants didn't know this. And the reason why we had a confederate there was to avoid early agreement because we wanted the debate to include some disagreement and our worry was that groups will agree very quickly and so there wouldn't be any debate. So the role of the confederate was if there was too early agreement to sort of promote and foster disagreement. The topic was student fees, which in the UK is still a controversial topic. And what students and other community participants were required to do wasn't to argue whether they agreed with student fees or disagreed with them, but they were presented arguments in favour of student fees and arguments against. And what they had to come to a consensus about was which arguments were good and which arguments were bad. And and what we were hoping to, to see was behaviour, for instance, uh, indicative of arrogance, such as dominating the floor space or interrupting other people in mid-flow, so not interrupting them in a place where it would be natural for people to come in, but interrupt people in a disruptive kind of way. We were looking at how people were engaging or not engaging with the other person's argument and how they presented their own point of view, if they presented it in a sort of uh, way that was full of certainty or whether they showed some kind of self-doubt. And so we were trying to look at these features of people's participation in debate with the presumption, which we are hoping to, to test, uh, that arrogant people will dominate the floor space, perhaps would uh, interrupt more often, and also perhaps engage less or less in a less friendly way with other people's contribution. Uh, whilst timid people presumably would speak less, uh, would interrupt less, uh, servile people perhaps would show less self-certainty and so on and so forth. So because we were looking at these things, we weren't quite looking at polarisation. They were given a task and the task was to achieve consensus. That said, um, in principle it would seem that if arrogance is defined as I think it is, it leads to a certain kind of self-certainty. And if you have a lot of people who are very certain of themselves uh, but have differing views, then presumably you would get polarisation. Mm -hmm. 
But so does that certainty uh, that goes along with arrogance, does that act to reinforce some of the kind of timid or servile behaviours, do you think? In the others, in the other person, other people, yeah. Um, not directly, I I don't think. So what I think is that people who are arrogant, among other things, are also very self-certain and show uh, lack of doubt. And there is also evidence that people who have defensive high self-esteem really, really overestimate their the extent to which other people agree with them. So they don't just... They are not just very confident of their views, but they also seem to be convinced that a lot of people agree with them. Right. Uh, but I don't know that that in itself promotes timidity and servility. But the arrogation of floor space and the, the aggressive behaviour, I think, does. So part of my hypothesis that arrogance is defensive high self-esteem is that as a result of that, arrogant people are very aggressive and very prone to, to anger. Um, and there's that angry behaviour, I think, that cle- that promotes, I believe, timidity in people because people don't want to be assaulted. And one way of, being, of defending yourself against aggression is by receding in the background and try to make yourself look inconspicuous. And I think that's part of timidity, right? Is trying to avoid being the target of any attack by saying as little as possible, being at, you know, being not noticed. And so that, I think, is the aggressiveness of arrogance directly that uh, causes uh, timidity and servility. That's my sense. Uh, the self-certainty of arrogance, I think, promotes ignorance because it closes down debate in other ways. But I'm not sure they promote servility and timidity. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it does. I don't but know. broadly, we might say that that kind of arrogant behaviour closes down debate and therefore is closed-minded in some way. With yes, so... It isn't clear to me what closed-mindedness means. Um, For instance, I disagree with some of the recent accounts that Heather Batley has provided because, in my view, not to consider some hypotheses or some possibilities, it's not necessarily closed-minded because otherwise we will never come to, to full belief. Uh, so it's inevitable for any human being to to ignore some possibilities. So the the question really is which possibilities you can ignore and still not be close-minded. So it can't be that you're close-minded just because you ignore some possibilities. And so it's not clear to me exactly what closed-mindedness is. But that said, insofar as individuals who are arrogant are incredibly certain of their views and very self-certain. It does seem to make sense to think that they are less open to revise their view in the light of the evidence. And so it would seem that uh, they might uh, be somewhat closed-minded. But it isn't it isn't straightforward and the reason why i'm so hesitant 
is because in the psychological literature, there is a notion of closed-mindedness, which is linked to the need for cognitive closure. Uh, and the idea is that this is an individual difference. And so there will be people who are higher in this need dispositionally and people who are lower in this need dispositionally. And people who are higher dispositionally, we all vary depending on the situation, but dispositionally, uh, will tend to seize on information if they are not confident of their previous views and then freeze on that information. And so there is a view there of closed-mindedness, which is somebody who jumps to conclusions when they do not know what to believe. But once they have reached the conclusion, they find it very hard to dislodge themselves from that point of view. I do not know that the arrogant are closed-minded in that sense. So I do not know. There is something there in the neighbourhood, but I do not know. It's not always directly correlating. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about the self-affirmation techniques that the project has looked at? Um, What are the techniques and are they something that anybody could take up? Um, Tell me a bit about those. The thought was that if it is right that arrogance is defensive high self-esteem, then arrogance is, in a sense a reaction to insecurity or a sense of insecurity. And so making people feel more secure about themselves should make them feel less arrogant. And that's what self-affirmation technique is meant to do. So the idea is that self-affirmation techniques were first developed to help people who suffer from stereotype threat, but have been found to work in, in a range of circumstances. They can also be thought as value affirmation, uh, but basically, and there are different ways in which they can operate, but the way we uh, used it was we presented participants with a, with a set of values, uh, things like freedom, independence, uh, openness, and we asked them to rank those values in order to how important they were to them. And, and then we ask them to pick the most important value for them and to write a short one-paragraph explanation of why that value is of value to them. There is no agreement on the mechanism of why these techniques are meant to be effective. But the, the one thought, but it's not the only thought, one thought is that the help one understand that there is more than one thing to to one's self-concept that help broaden the working self-concept one sees oneself as more varied less narrow than one thinks and that this sense that there is more to one makes whatever situation one is in feel less threatening and that sense of being not being threatened is what makes people less arrogant. Because if it's true that arrogance is a defensive response to insecurity that makes one feel every situation as a threatening one, uh, making one perceive the situation as less threatening by making one feel more secure oneself should lower arrogance. I was wondering whether 
simply being open to other people's ideas will always require not that you will be transformed but an openness to change or transformation in that sense in that other people's ideas or perspectives you have to be open to the fact that they may change your own ideas and yes, perspectives absolutely not that so, they certainly will yeah, but that they might absolutely yes so two things to that uh, one is the reason why I tend to think that we need to be careful to equate humility with transformation is that humility is not the same thing as not having a view of your own or lacking in conviction. So there is an understanding of humility that might seem to make it opposed to having a conviction, as if to be humble is to always have doubts, therefore never be, never have any firm beliefs. That is to be a leaf in the wind, is not to be humble, right? But yes, to be humble requires that one is always open to the possibility that one's ideas are wrong and therefore that one might want to change one's mind. But I'm keen to say there is a difference there between openness to the possibility that one needs to change one's view, openness to the possibility that other people's opinion will improve one's epistemic position. And that, I think, is different from saying you should always doubt your own viewpoint. Because if you always doubt your own viewpoint, you cannot really achieve anything. You know, if you say you're in favour of human rights, but you doubt your own viewpoint, you will never be a strong activist. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's great. I wonder if that can kind of bring us on to talk a little bit more about intellectual timidity and civility which is um, we mentioned at the beginning. Um, so you've looked at those, those areas um, in previous work. Um, and I think in this podcast, I'm particularly interested in thinking about um, people who are on the margins and how they enter public debate. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, timidity and civility in that context? Yes. So let me just say what I have in mind when I talk of intellectual timidity and intellectual servility. Intellectual servility, I think, is characteristic of people who are differential, who are, tend to agree with the opinion of whoever is in charge. And I believe that that Vice is also a consequence of a discrepant self-esteem, but the other way around, um, so from arrogance. So was the arrogant explicitly has high self-esteem, so if asked, they are very self-confident. Implicitly, they are insecure. I think people who are servile are people who are explicitly lacking in self-confidence, but in have an inner strength. And, and this might sound a strange thought, but my inspiration comes from Du Bois. In The Soul of Black Folks, he talks about double consciousness. And he mentions that people from an African-American background have two conceptions of the self. One that comes from inside, uh, which is positive, 
And another that comes from the world around them that judges them negatively. And so the view is that they measure themselves by two measures. Their own measure, which is positive, and the measure of society that despises them, which is negative. And, and there's that discrepancy that I think is at the root of servility. And the view is that these are people who inside know their worth. Uh, but in order to get along in society, acquire a negative viewpoint of themselves, which is a reflection of what society thinks of them. And and as a result of that, acquire a tendency to, in order to get along, to just agree and just perhaps to begin with, just to pretend. But then at some point that becomes who you are. And so the view is that their marginalization can cause ingratiation as a survival technique. Uh, and then you start sort of thinking of yourself along the lines, in the way in which others think of you, simply because thinking in that way uh, makes you fit in in society. So it's similar to an Uncle Tom kind of position where you accept the view that others have of yourself uh, because having those views makes you accepted in society. So that that was servility, and I think it then causes people to agree with the dominant viewpoint, and um, and and of course is epistemically harmful because it stifles uh, debate. Because if people just agree with other people, uh, there is no possibility of give and take of reasons, and of course it also. It's bad for people who are servile because they are deprived of the possibility of sort of genuinely seeing things from their own perspective. So that servility, uh, I think timidity is closely related to it, is also uh, a vice of low self-esteem, but it manifests itself slightly differently. So whilst the servile is primarily somebody who just ingratiates himself and so just agrees with what society thinks. The, the timid person's strategy is just to say nothing. Uh, and so timidity is just a way of shrinking and making yourself as small as possible. Um, and these two vices have similarities. So they are both vices of, of the oppressed. They are both vices of low self-esteem. But they also have differences. So I think what is most characteristic of timidity is a fearful disposition. So the person who is timid, if you want to borrow vocabulary from Matthew Radcliffe, has an existential feeling of fear. They live in fear. And their fearfulness sort of dominates their intellectual life. So they say very little, they self-silence. Uh, they try to occupy as little space as possible. I think bodily also. And you can sort of see timid students, they sort of become tiny and say nothing and are very quiet. So that's timidity. Was servility differs from timidity because of the ingratiation, but because the dominant emotion is not fear, it's shame, shame-proneness. And so, so you have two different emotional dispositions 
both caused by oppression, right? Fear because you're being marginalized, so you try to protect yourself and you're fearful. Or shame because the world judges you negatively, right? And of course, one can be both shame-prone and fearful, but one can be fearful without being shame-prone and vice versa. Although I suspect mostly people will have both. And so there are differences between the two vices conceptually, but I think they often probably come together. Does that? That does. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, How do you think people can overcome those kinds of... um, We're calling them vices, aren't we? That feels a little unkind, but yes. uh, Those sort of vices, intellectual vices. Um, Could I take the latter point first, Mm. and then I'll answer your question. There is a real issue about calling these vices, and I am not the first one who mentions it. Uh, Lisa Tessman, in her fantastic book, Burdened Virtues, also worries about uh, talking about the vices of the oppressed, uh, because seeing the oppressed as deficient in some way, or have it been deficient in their character in some way, has often been a strategy to sort of see that they are responsible for their own oppression. And so as a way of deflecting attention away from the structural causes, which are the true causes of the situation. And so the use of the vocabulary of vice is really problematic. It's also problematic in another way, which is... There is some empirical evidence that uh, I have become aware of, thanks to Mark Alfano's work in his book on character, that virtues and vices are, in his vocabulary, factitious. So to call somebody virtuous tends to promote virtue in them. To call somebody vicious tends to promote vice in them. I, if you describe somebody as vicious, they, will, they are more likely to behave viciously than they were before. So they are sort of self-fulfilling prophecies, these attributions. For all of these reasons, I don't think it would be much very appropriate to sort of call people who are oppressed vicious and sort of say, you're vicious, uh, but I still think that it is useful to to understand these two character traits, uh, which have negative consequences, uh, because unless we understand the psychological damage that oppression does to the oppressed, we really are not in a position to do anything about the situation in the absence of immediate structural remedies. You know, discrimination against women and ethnic minorities is not going to disappear anytime soon. And if all we can say is structures are the problem and therefore we need to change structures, which is true, we are not addressing the real psychological pain that people undergo now. Uh, And so I think it's important to understand how oppression, what oppression does to the mind of the oppressed in an attempt to offer some temporary relief in the knowledge and understanding that the real cause lies elsewhere. 
Yeah, so let's move towards intellectual humility. Is this the happy medium? Is it a helpful place to focus our efforts? Um, yeah, so perhaps answer that first, and then we'll think about what intellectual humility actually looks like. Um, I don't want to think of virtues as the mean between two vices, even though they often appear that way. So Aristotle talked about virtue as the golden mean, or vices of defect and vices of excess, uh, and, and humility does appear that way. So it might appear that humility is the medium, but I do not think it is. I think um, that's just an appearance. First of all, it would seem odd that one can be arrogant and then become less arrogant until the violence flips from negative to positive, humility, and then it flips again to negative in servility. That is an odd thing for a continuum to sort of switch valence twice that way. And also, it makes trying to be humble like a real sort of odd balancing exercise, which also I don't think is the right thing. So I think it's just an appearance. Uh, my view is that to be humble is to have an assessment of yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses that is driven by the desire to really make sense and understand yourself. Whilst arrogance is a way of understanding yourself, is an opinion of your own strengths and weaknesses, that is not driven by the need to understand yourself, is driven by the need to feel good about yourself. And servility is an understanding of the self, your strengths and weaknesses, which is not driven by the need to understand yourself, but is driven by the need to get along. And so the idea is that arrogance, servility and humility are three measures of the self, if you want. Three ways of understanding yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses. But they are driven by different motivations. Arrogance is the motive of self-enhancement. Servility is the motive of getting along or social acceptance. And it's only humility that is driven by the need to, to really understand what you're like. That makes humility sound um, quite individualised, though, whereas perhaps arrogance and um, civility have more kind of contact points with sort of social elements to them. Does that make sense? So it sounds like arrogance is about feeling good about yourself in relation to others. Civility is about getting along with others. And humility, in the way you've just described, sounds more perhaps um, introspective or... Um, something like that. Is that quite is that quite right? Or how does humility fit in a social context? Right. So so I think that all of these vices and virtues are self-directed. So arrogance too is about the self, right? It's about feeling good about yourself. Um, so in that sense, I think they're all self-regarding. They all have a social dimension insofar as the person who is arrogant needs to feel superior to other people in order to feel good about himself. The, the servile person needs to get along with other people, so he needs to know what they think. Um, the person who is humble 
tries to understand themselves as they really are and therefore has an independence of the ego from their own self-assessment. And so that independence of the ego, that low focus on oneself, I think is in a sense the social dimension of humility in this sense that you're not invested in feeling superior to other people. Um, What would an intellectually humble person sound like? How would they behave? And is it an easy quality to recognise in other people, do you think? What they would sound out like and what they would behave, I think there is no unique answer. Because I think it would enormously depend on the circumstances they find themselves in. For example, a person who is humble but belongs to a stigmatised group might need to be more assertive uh, in order to get their point of view heard. That doesn't make them arrogant, but it means that they will behave differently than a humble person who belongs to a privileged background, who might instead need to really tone down their assertiveness. So what I don't think there is a, a sort of a behaviour which is the trademark. I, I think part of what it takes to be humble is to actually have the wisdom to know, given all the other things about yourself, how to behave. And that might really vary from person to person, culture to culture, situation to situation. So I don't think there is one uh, way. And also there might be different forms of humility depending on other features of the person. And uh, is it easy to recognise? I think not. (laughs) Okay, that's really interesting. Um, I wonder whether the language of humility is alienating for some groups, especially those who are seeking to assert their voices after long periods of marginalisation and those who are seeking to draw attention to injustices. So you've said already that um, humility isn't a set of behaviours, it's more of an internal understanding um, of the self and one's position, um, one's weaknesses and strengths. Um, So it's not a set of behaviours, but how um, does this practice of intellectual humility intersect with... um, attempts to draw attention to injustice or perhaps to achieve um, recognition and status for groups who have been overlooked. So in some understandings of intellectual humility, uh, status is a part of um, intellectual humility, so having a low regard for um, one's intellectual status. Uh, But we often see um, in kind of research around women's experience, I'm particularly thinking of that... um, they have a low sense of their intellectual status already, perhaps that they've kind of inherited over a long period of time, which is inaccurate. And so how does this how does this all kind of play out when we're trying to have public debates, people are trying to speak up, draw attention, um, gain status and um, and talk about injustice? How does intellectual humility come into play in those contexts? I am always very worried when people tell other people that they need to be more humble, especially if these other people are people from uh, underprivileged backgrounds. Um, There is a tradition 
uh, that thinks that humility is not a virtue. And that tradition includes some of the very early feminists, like Wollstonecraft, who thought that humility and modesty, which is, after all, what women were required to be, were actually vices and not virtues. Uh, in my view, is because, for instance, Wollstonecraft, but others like that, what they describe as humility, I think, is actually extreme self-abasement, which is sort of the worst form of servility. And so there are certain terminological issues. Uh, I think it's true that the vocabulary of humility has often been used to put women in, in their place. Uh, and a bit like factitious vice, I, I think we need to be careful about the power that the vocabulary has independently of the underlying reality. And we also need to be careful about what we mean by humility because uh, I say there is a tendency to see women who are just assertive as arrogant. And so we need to be very careful in, in that regard. Um, the second thing I like to say here is that I see humility as completely compatible with pride and in fact as requiring pride uh, if one is to avoid being servile. Um, and so I think that uh, what humility is is having a proper assessment of one's own strengths and weaknesses. And what pride is, is taking some kind of delight in one's social achievement. Uh, and I think that the two things are not incompatible. Uh, and so it's possible to, to have pride and be humble. And we might sometimes think that they are incompatible, but because we have this odd conception of humility that actually makes it the vice of self-abasement. Somebody who has no opinion, lacks all conviction, and has no pride in themselves. I don't think that's what humility is. Uh, or if that's what humility means, then we need a different word for something else, uh, where the something else is some, is some kind of egalitarian view of the self, right? As somebody who really tries to understand, you know, what their worth is without needing to feel superior to other people in order to feel worth anything. But to be proud of who you are and what you do doesn't require that you only proud if you feel superior to other people. You can be proud of your achievement without thinking that the reason why they are achievements is because they mark you as superior.